Connecticut Democrats, or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's episode of Connecticrats, the CT Dems podcast. I'm your co-host, Mike Cerulli. And I'm David Kostek with the Connecticut Democratic Party. So, Dave, as always, we had two all-stars on the show this week, although we kind of switched roles a little bit. I took the state legislature candidate, Tim Gavin, who's running for state Senate in the 28th district. And then I spoke with Eric Russell, who is running for treasurer. And for a little while, he was the vice chair of the state party. So I got to know Eric in that capacity first. It was nice to sit down and talk to him as a candidate running for statewide office. Um, You know, it's surprising. You spend time working with somebody in one capacity and you have no idea they have. I I never really talked to him about his professional life. Man, as it comes through in this interview, he knows his stuff and I am thrilled that he's running. And it's a really important position. I think folks, maybe I think we were joking before about how, you know, folks maybe don't know the difference between the treasurer's office and the comptroller's office, but the treasurer's office is really important, isn't it? It certainly is. Um, and, and we do get into that a little bit, a little bit about the uh, banter between uh, uh, Eric Russell and Sean Scanlon out on the campaign trail on that very topic. But um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only is it managing the pensions that, that you know, state employees and are, are relying on, but also has roles with the college savings program, the 529, the new baby bonds initiative. And Eric gets into a little bit about his safe harbor plan for the upcoming mm-hmm. term. And in an interesting way, similar to the comptroller office, controls a lot of money that is, in the treasurer's case, invested usually with financial institutions. And, you know, I know Eric talks a lot about leveraging that power for social good. And I know Sean has similar plans you know he's not investing the money but he's he's buying insurance plans for the state um and both of them are in a position to sort of leverage uh big institutions which brings me to my my guest that i talked to this week tim gavin who um is i mean just an amazing candidate he's an army vet he's uh you know grew up here in connecticut and he currently works on a lot of uh, issues around social media and building more uh friendly and sustainable and all around less toxic environments online and him and I actually got kind of in the weeds talking about, you know, different reforms that you could push for at the state level to make another type of big institution, our social media companies, you know, more hospitable to both democracy and people's general, <laughs> you know, not being angry all the time, right? I am all for a less toxic social media environment. Sign me up. Yeah, I guess that would, that would make your job a lot easier, wouldn't it? Oh, my God, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll throw it over now to your interview with state treasurer candidate Eric Russell. You've been out there campaigning statewide. That means a lot of picnics, a lot of candidate like meet and greet type things, a lot of forums, all that stuff. And uh, uh, certainly you hear from all the other candidates that you're running with on a ticket. I heard Chris Murphy at one of these things recently sort of joking about the difference between the treasurer and the controller, right? We have these two <laughs> roles in state government that have something to do with money, but it's it's maybe not clear to most voters what the difference is. Can you just start start in with what is the role of the treasurer? Sure. And Sean Scanlon and I often joke about this because uh, they're both roles that not everyone is, is overly familiar with, but uh, there are a lot of finance responsibilities uh, under the office of the treasurer. Um, one is obviously managing our pension funds and protecting the close to 300,000 state and municipal employees and teachers and retirees um, and the assets that they've paid into our pension funds and are are counting on being there for them when they retire and when they need it most. Um, 
There's also debt management. And this is a lot of the work that I do uh, every day professionally. And that's um, managing the debt. We have outstanding all of our bonded debt um, and all of our bond issuances, which allow us to continue to invest uh, in building stronger, safer communities across the state. So schools and infrastructure and transportation, uh, housing and childcare facilities, a lot of those um, resources are provided through uh, bonding out of the treasurer's office. Uh, and then there's, there's several other kind of categories. There's our general cash management. Um, there's the unclaimed property program and second mm-hmm. injury fund through the treasurer's office. Um, and then programs such as our 529 check program, um, as well as financial literacy that's done through the, the treasurer's office. But at the end of the day, what the role is really about is um, continuing to move the fiscal health of our state forward um, and collaborating with the administration and the legislature to do that. I mean, right now, I mean, anyone anyone who uh, you know has a 401k of their own kind of is seeing that there is a lot of uh, volatility. Markets are pretty much down right now across the board. It is mm-hmm. it's a rough time. It's a rough time. So in, in approaching something like, you know, managing pension funds and whatever else, what is sort of guiding your, your approach to how you're going to uh, look at that and manage the volatility in, in markets where no one can know over the next four years what's going to happen? Yeah, and, and that's the the challenge, right? It's why we also need to be uh, very diligent about the fiscal health of our state uh, big picture, right? It's why we need to uh, we have a full rainy day fund under the leadership of the governor um, over the last four years have really improved the overall fiscal health of the state, which is go- will allow us to withstand some of these volatile times. It's also why we build our portfolio um, out um in our pension funds to withstand inflationary and volatile times. Um, and so a big piece of this is asset allocation and making sure that we are, um, we are, our assets are, our investments are placed in the right spaces again to withstand volatility. But it's also important to note that as a pension fund, we are not short-term investors, right? We are not looking, right. um, the pension fund is not about maximizing it's not about our returns over a one or two year period. It's about long-term investment. And so we need to make sure that we are, um, we're investing in a way that is going to maximize returns for our pensioners um, and that uh, we are continuing to grow our pension funds, but we need to do that in a way that's also minimizing risk to our fund as well. You, you, you mentioned the rainy day fund right there. And, um, you know, Republicans right now, including Bob Stefanowski are talking about, Draining the rainy day fund at least half, at least you know Stefan asked like we can lose half of it. I'm not sure how he came up with that number, but that's what he's out there saying. And we've heard this from Republicans a lot. Um, you know, before the pandemic, drain the rainy day fund. During the pandemic, drain the rainy day fund. In this campaign, as we're, as we're uh, you know managing the pandemic, drain the rainy day fund. What happens if they do that? So, I think the first thing is to remember that the rainy day fund is there for our state in times when we need it most. And while I understand that um, people are struggling right now, um, it during, you know, with inflation right now and prices being up due to uh, a lot of global factors that are well out of the control of anyone in our state, um, you know, people feel it. Uh, and it's why 
the governor and Democrats passed the largest uh, tax cuts in the state's history, over $650 million to provide relief to middle and uh, middle class and, and working families in our state. Um, but it's also very clear that under the governor's leadership and under Democratic leadership more broadly, uh, we have turned our state around fiscally in a huge way. And we are on the right track to continuing to improve our fiscal health. If you looked at, you know, four balanced budgets, um, uh, a full rainy day fund, over $5 billion paid toward our unfunded pension liability. Um, this is what has allowed us. We've had four bond rating improvements uh, over the last four years, which allows us to continue to invest in communities across the state at the lowest cost to taxpayers. Uh, that over $5 billion in unfunded pension liability frees up upwards of $450 million annually um, out of our budget. And so, you know, the claims that <clears throat> Republicans are the party of fiscal responsibility, I think, has often been uh, the argument. And what's clear is that it's Democrats who have actually led on this front. And keeping our rainy day fund secure uh, is important in continuing that process. I think the other thing that's important to note with that is, um, and I don't know exactly what the, the full position on this, because there's a lot of detail missing from uh, many of the proposals that have been rolled out uh, by Republicans. <laughs> that's but, <another> statement. <laughs> um, but the, the reality is that I, my guess is that the goal is to pull that money from the rainy day fund, which is ultimately meaning that we're not going to be paying down unfunded pension liability. And we've landed in the spot where we have a huge hole in our pension funds because of, you know, decades and decades of failure to make these investments when we've had the resources to do them. And um, it's been under the governor Malloy first, who uh, was the first governor in many years to, to make our actuarially required contributions to the pension fund. And uh, governor Lamont has been the first governor in um, a very long time, to make those additional contributions to make sure we're keeping our state and municipal employees and teachers uh, secure and that we're growing our pension fund. So um, these all these things are kind of all intertwined, but I think the, the big picture here is that we, while providing relief, which we as Democrats will continue to do um, to working families and continuing to invest in people here in the state, we also need to keep the long-term fiscal health of the state in mind um, so that we're protecting generations to come as well. Yeah, you talked about the bond ratings there, and I feel like that's something that has flown kind of under the radar a little bit. I'm not sure most voters are really aware of that. Um, you know, when when an entity like a state or a municipality or a corporation issues some kind of debt for whatever reason in order to, you know, raise money from investors, right? You have to pay a certain interest rate, right? That bond rating stuff is huge because of the long-term savings. It's huge. It's, it's a very big deal, um, and it's what, um, allows us, I mean, we've also gone through the process um, over recent years of refinancing, and this is both on the municipal level and state level and a lot of our state agencies, um, refinancing a lot of outstanding debt that we've had, which has saved taxpayers millions and millions of dollars. Um, one, it's because of obviously historically low interest rates, but uh, municipalities and and when the state has a better bond rating, they're able to borrow at a much lower cost, right. uh, which at the end of the day saves um, taxpayers money. And so um, things like the rainy day fund and uh, available cash on hand and um, commitment to paying down other debt, right? These are all factors and things that uh, rating agencies are looking at when they're making determinations. And 
you know, for us to weaken the overall fiscal health of the state by pulling reserves that we have uh, or showing a lack of commitment to thinking kind of longer term on, on some of these fiscal issues uh, would certainly impact our bond rating. We'll be back with more of my talk with Eric Russell in just a minute. But first, let's kick it over to Mike, who sits down with Connecticut State Senate candidate Tim Gavin. So, Tim, I want to start as we do with all of our state legislature candidates. Uh, first of all, tell us a bit about yourself, uh, where you are at right now, and the district you're running in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm Tim Gavin, and I'm running for state Senate in Connecticut's 28th district, uh, which includes Fairfield, Newtown, uh, Bethel, and Easton. Um, right now, I'm in Fairfield in my lovely apartment, and uh, I grew up here in Connecticut. Uh, my parents were public school teachers for decades. Uh, I think I'd say that their commitment to public service definitely rubbed off on me, too. So growing up, I was a Boy Scout, and then in college, I ran a program that connected Yale students to volunteer opportunities with local nonprofits uh, focused on supporting New Haven's refugees, food insecure, and unhoused populations. Then after graduating with a humanities degree uh, focused on ethics, I went into the army as an infantry officer. I had some incredible experiences there. I led a platoon of tanks and Bradleys. I met soldiers from all over the country. Um, But after four years and a lot of nights spent out in the field, I was definitely ready to make the transition back in civilian life. So I started to prepare to make a career transition uh, to start a career here in Connecticut. Um, Yeah, and that's how I ended up here in Fairfield. So you army vet, you know, you're, you're on a, you know, commanding Bradley fighting vehicles. Uh, I'm assuming in pretty cramped quarters, hot out in the desert uh, with those things. Uh, and you've been running for office for the last few months. I'm going to ask you kind of a joke here, but also serious. Which do you think is tougher? You think the gauntlet of politics or would you rather be back in a, in a Bradley? <laughs> is that, is which, which of those have you found to be the tougher, uh, the tougher fighting environment? I will say I was surprised just how much, uh, physical uh, tediousness is involved with running for office. Uh, we've knocked <laughs> 10,000 doors now. Right, and right. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real like test of your stamina. But <laughs> I will definitely say that, uh, you know, training to be an infantry officer was, was a little bit harder. And, understandable, um, understandable uh, for sure. <laughs> and certainly the conditions here in Connecticut are a lot more beautiful than where I was training. Uh, first, I was in Georgia. Um, in some pretty pretty humid weather, and mm-hmm. then out in California in Death Valley, which was uh, the literal hottest temperature uh, <laughs> recorded on in uh, human history was was right there right. Uh, where I was training. So yeah, I'll, I'll take running for office. <laughs> nice, 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 and, and thankfully I don't I don't think that uh, Steve Scheinberg has you knocking those doors with a rucksack on, right? No, no, he is uh, <laughs> he's definitely pushing me to go out and knock, but no rucksack nice. required. Thankfully. Nice. So if it's okay with you, I want to focus a bit on what you're doing. Uh, obviously, what you're doing for work now is part of your work as you're running for office, but what you do, what's your day job, and sort of how that might play into some of your views on public service. So tell folks about a bit about your uh, post-military, your civilian career, uh, and what you've sort of focused on there. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was transitioning from the military, I completed a coding boot camp for veterans, uh, which allowed me to find a job in technology. Um Actually, quick plug, just in 14 weeks, uh, a lot of the folks I was going through that boot camp with just had a high school degree and were able to land jobs in technology uh, at companies like, for me, it was it was Meta, um, other really uh, incredibly cutting edge tech companies. Um, so I'd, I'd love to see a program like that uh, right here in Connecticut with our, our debt-free community colleges. 
but <laughs> with that aside, uh, yeah, I started working uh, on the child safety team at Meta, and I was working to combat child exploitation on Facebook and Instagram. So collaborating really closely with law enforcement and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And I think that collaboration between government, uh, nonprofit organizations, and, and the private sector is it's really uh, effective in uh, holding those those engaged in child grooming and child abuse accountable. And it definitely holds lessons for how to serve the public in other areas. Uh, and now I'm working for the Integrity Institute, which is a nonprofit think tank uh, that works with legislators, regulators, and tech companies to implement better integrity design in digital platforms. So to be clear, uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Institute here, um, but I'm really happy to share some of the online policies that I would personally love to see Connecticut adopt. Yeah, talk about that, because I think it's obviously been a hot button issue, right? Both integrity on the sort of civic side of it. I know, you know, specifically Facebook and, and Meta had a civic integrity unit that was focused on a lot of election and democracy related stuff. And then on the on the more sort of um, serious, they're all serious, but on the on the on the safety issues that you worked on, there's there's stuff there. And then there's sort of more existential questions about sort of the business models and whether or not those are healthy for society or democracy. So yeah, tell me about some of the policies that you personally as candidate Tim Gavin uh, are, are thinking about. And, and you know, I think I, I was just talking to my parents about this a few hours ago about, you know, just I think a lot of people clearly see sort of a cloud of issues around uh, social media and, and Internet use, particularly among young people. But on the policy side and on the solution side, I think there's a lot of question marks there as to what is available. And so someone like you might be very good at filling in some of those blanks. Yeah, yeah. So I think a good starting place is, is just that I really do believe that uh, one of the root causes for the increase in hate crimes and extremism over the past decade has been that social media companies were built using algorithms that focus on optimizing for growth and engagement. And the problem is that ranking systems, which seek to increase time on the platform, aren't necessarily aligned with the more important goals of human flourishing and well-being. And the specific example that stands out to me is just back in 2018, uh, one social media company instituted a, a new ranking algorithm that was called uh, MSI, Meaningful Social Interaction. And it was intended to promote more interaction between users um, by promoting content based on, you know, likes, uh, comments, and reactions, um, which, you know, at face value doesn't seem like a bad thing. Um, the problem was that uh, the content that is most likely, um, more likely to violate um, social media companies' own policies, um, so in other words, it's harmful content, uh, actually gets more engagement, more likes, uh, more right. comments, more reactions. Right. Um, so yeah. rather than encouraging like a, a real healthy dialogue among users, MSI actually boosted really inflammatory content and mm -hmm. rewarded divisive and misinformed, uh, sometimes intentionally misinformed content. Right. Uh, so this algorithm actually radicalized people who you know wouldn't have sought out hateful or extremist content. So on the solution side, I think it's it's really critical to pass online safety legislation uh, that addresses uh, ranking, design, and algorithmic transparency uh, by social media companies. And, and this would ensure independent researchers are able to have the access uh, to the same metrics uh, to track harm and monitor algorithms to make sure that they're, they're responsibly designed that you know, people in the company have. 
uh, ranking and design choices, they just play a significant role uh, in exposing users to, to harmful content. So in a lot of ways, it's the ranking and design is is the revealed preferences preferences of mm -hmm. of a company's values. You know, not what they have on their website as the like stated right, uh, company right, mission. Right. Very, very flowery sounding <laughs> about connecting the world, or sometimes literally saying, you know, not to be evil, right? <laughs> and then some of their products uh, maybe maybe go the other direction on that. It's interesting. You talk a lot about you know, I'm I'm pretty as you know as a college student, I'm pretty steeped in these issues of yeah if you're if you're designing products for engagement you're gonna you know the algorithms don't necessarily know the difference between you know someone's birthday post that gets a lot of comments or a piece of information that gets a lot of misinformation that gets a lot of uh, comments and it seems to me that there's some parallels and they could be causal here of you have these online structures that optimize for engagement which as you said end up at rewarding bad behavior and then in the political system which was also intended to not be what it is right now, right? I'm sure if you think of sort of the, the mission statement of our political system, our constitution, you know, it, it specifically, you know, not in the document, but the folks you wrote it specifically talked about wanting to minimize partisanship and wanting to, you know, um, you know, decrease instances of corruption and stuff like that. And it seems that the system has produced in a similar way to these social media sites, the exact opposite of that. Um, so if you, if you do have the chance to go up to Hartford on behalf of, of the folks of, of your district, will you take some of what you've learned in the sort of social media internet context and bring it and say, look, this is a political system that in a lot of ways, again, could be causal here, but in a lot of ways also incentivizes the worst possible behavior, you know, up to and including uh, an insurrection, up to and including, you know, election denialism and climate denialism and all the other isms that we see you know, how do you view, do you view those as the same thing? Do you view them as one problem causes the other um, or is it sort of um, distinct entities to you? I think that there's definitely a relationship there. And and I think in both cases, uh, uh, something that would go a long way is just more transparency. So the public needs more transparency to see, you know, that platforms are behaving responsibly. Right. And I think they need the same from politics, honestly. Um, so if I am yeah. so lucky uh, to, to get to go to Hartford, uh, I would push for a state law that's similar to the, the federal bipartisan platform accountability and transparency right. act, which provides resource uh, researchers, researchers uh, access to, to that undisclosed data, uh, which is going to allow them to hold social media companies accountable. Mm. Um, but I would also, I would also just try to be as uh, transparent as possible and, and ask people to hold me accountable as well. Mm -hmm. And and I think I think a lot of people, even those who might not understand the minutia of how these algorithms work, you know, they understand great examples like campaign finance disclosures. You know, you yourself, you know, meaning a listener, might not be the person who's scrolling through the FEC or the Seek filings, but there are groups and people out there who use that information to hold those in power to account. Um, and I think just in the last few years, we've seen. Um, I guess in these cases would have been unauthorized disclosures of, of research done on on these algorithms. But, you know, like you said, if we were to open up uh, sort of the book, so to speak, people might be able to get uh, more actionable insights on it. So um, I want to pivot away from that stuff. Uh, I know it's a little to people it might be a little uh, depressing or, <laughs> or distressing, but I think it's important to talk about. But let's move away from that for now. And I want to talk a bit about your race. So you're running in what has always been a pretty competitive district. Um, without wanting to amplify your opponent, he's a pretty well-known guy in the district. Uh, his, his name is, is everywhere in the district, including on all of his articles of clothing. And, um, <laughs> and so as, as a first-time candidate, 
Um, what's your sort of approach to going at an incumbent in a sort of purple district, but also one that's always been a tough nut to crack? How are you going about it? And what are you seeing? How's the reception to your campaign been? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the thing for me is that I don't have anything personally against my opponent. You know, he, he seems like a friendly guy. Yeah, for really, sure. I'm yeah, just yeah. running because his views and his votes in the general assembly, they honestly seem out of step with our community. You know, I certainly right. felt like they didn't reflect our values. Uh, I found out uh, about him uh, a lot when, when in during the pandemic, he voted against uh, using access to absentee voting, um, mm. which to me seems like a basic heuristic of like uh, where a politician is at when it comes to, to advocating mm. on behalf of their constituents. Are they going to make it harder for them to vote or are they going to make it easier for them to vote? And for me, seeing right. that that vote, I felt like uh, I, I wanted to look a little bit more uh, into what else he had been up to. So I did some more research and saw that he voted against strengthening our state's red flag laws, uh, which ensures folks at extreme risk of harming themselves or others don't have access to a firearm. And he voted Mm -hmm. against ending deceptive advertising by crisis pregnancy centers and against Mm -hmm. paid family and medical leave. So I just felt like uh, I wanted to make sure my voice was being heard. And uh, I, I asked who was who was running for the seat and um, uh, there wasn't anybody else. And and I felt like I had some some new ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. One being um, online safety legislation. Um, but but really beyond that, I think just a, a voice for uh, some of the, the values that I felt like were we're not being uh, currently acted upon in that seat. So it hasn't been hard to get traction. Uh, when I'm going door to door, so many people are resonating with, with my values and my message. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of overcoming, uh, like you said, so much name recognition. Um, and, and we're just doing it, you know, the army way by brute force. Um, a lot of door to door, getting the message out there. And, and that's really been my approach is just meet as many people as I, possibly can between now and November and hopefully give them a strong alternative um, to the incumbent. And, uh, and yeah, hopefully uh, come November, they'll, they'll choose me. Yeah. And I saw you actually, I think it might've been on Instagram or somewhere. Uh, you had a pretty good comment on the extreme risk protection order, which are sometimes called red flag laws. Um, talk a bit about, and obviously your opponent voted against having a version of that here in Connecticut. Um, talk a bit about what your views are on that and how your service impacts how you view those protection orders uh, as a matter of public policy. Right, right. This to me seems like a really critical uh, piece of policy to to ensure that we're keeping weapons uh, out of the hands of folks who are at risk of harming themselves or others. And the, the moment that really stands out to me uh, where this really clarified uh, for me was, was while I was in the military, the first uh, range I ever got to run as, as an active duty infantry officer uh, was one of the more dangerous training events that you, mm-hmm. you get to do. Um, it was a nighttime live fire. So we all have night vision goggles on. Uh, we're, we're actively bounding between barriers and shooting uh, live rounds right next to each other. Um, and, to the, and to the listeners, to not only, and you could maybe describe this, not only is it, you know, everything under those night vision goggles, like green and black, but also pretty, pretty severely restricted peripherals, right? And it's, so it's, you're, you're certainly, it's, it's for a lot of reasons, a pretty high stress environment, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And, uh, 
And in that environment, that high stress environment, I had the soldier come up to me and say that he overheard one of his one of his uh, teammates saying that he was going to start putting rounds into into people's backs uh, wow. on their training training lane. He said there's about to be a training incident. Uh, and so for me in the military, there was this very clear process by which I had him hand off his M4 and go get the help that he needed at behavioral health. I think mm-hmm. when you see a red flag, you need to be able to take action and make sure that there's not a tragedy, you know, whether it's somebody harming themselves or mm-hmm. others uh, in civilian life. So to see Senator Wong vote against strengthening our extreme risk protections uh, when you know, every every uh, one of the Democratic uh, House uh, reps in his district sponsored it. Uh, it felt like a glaring uh, opposition to what I felt like was just common sense. It was it was uh, a real misstep to to vote against something that was definitely going to keep people safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. And I think, like you said, the Army way of just like. And, I, and it's just common sense, right? Most people, I think, understand if someone is demonstrating that they're having a mental health crisis or for whatever else reason, you know, might not be in the best position to handle a firearm, there should be a process in place to, to get them the help that they need. And that might include taking that firearm away. And I think so many people understand that, but to see leaders who, um, for whatever reason, vote against it, I think is both frustrating and also a little confusing. So um, I, I just, I thought that that story you told illustrated it so well. Um, Talking a bit, and again, we'll, we'll lighten things up here a little bit more. Um, you've told me how you've knocked 10,000 doors. You've been all around the districts. I grew up in Trumbull, so I know Fairfield very well. Uh, for those that might not know your district well, uh, which this time of year is like one of my favorite places to be in Connecticut, what are some of your favorite spots? And what we always do with guests on here is we say, hey, help us plan a day, a visit to your district. You know, door knocking with Tim Gavin. Where are we going for lunch? Where are we going to, to see the sites in and around the, uh, the 28th district? Oh man, uh, I'll I'll restrict myself to Fairfield uh, to to okay. limit the the frustration of small business owners in the other the other towns. <laughs> um, you can but, list uh, off a bunch here, so you don't offense, you don't uh, have to pick favorites. <laughs> I'll say this is a typical day for me, uh, a great day for me um, on the weekend in Fairfield. Is uh, I'm a huge coffee drinker, so the first thing I'd, I'd recommend is getting a cup of coffee at, at Candlewood Market. Mm-hmm. And and then just go right around the corner to to rock climb Fairfield. Uh, I have a few free guest passes uh, left, so if you ever do come down, just let me I, know. I, I've actually <laughs> have been there before with with a couple of buddies of mine. One of whom is uh, over in Syria with Tenth Mountain right now, and he, him and I have been there once. So it's it's a great spot. Yeah, I just recommend it to anyone who's listening. Yeah, awesome spot. And and you know after we climb. Uh, We'd probably be hungry, so we could grab a smoothie at the stand right there. Uh, nice. Every, and then, you know, take those down to the beach. Um, my mom grew up in Bridgeport, so she went to Jennings Beach a lot growing up. Nice, nice. Yeah, she introduced me to the area, and it's just, it's absolutely gorgeous. I yep. really couldn't think of a better spot to spend an afternoon. Yeah, almost And then after that, that yep. you know, just head back to Shermantown Green and, and go to Centros, <laughs> which is a, a staple. <laughs> nice. Uh, in Fairfield, it's it's phenomenal Italian restaurant, and uh, in the summer, which unfortunately just just ended, um, there's there's a concert series, so you can sit outside, eat yeah, some amazing Italian food, and listen mm-hmm. to, to music. Pretty mm-hmm. idyllic. And we should point out too that your district includes what is, in my opinion, and I say this as a UConn student who's loyal to the Dairy Bar, but your 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 district includes uh, 
Ferris Acres Creamery, which is probably the best ice cream in Connecticut. <laughs> I mean, I've I've been traveling a lot campaigning with people, and I would say Ferris Acres is up there. It's got to at least be top five. So if you make it, it's far from Fairfield, but you make the drive out there for for ice cream. I'm assuming sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, nice. Ferris nice. Acres is in my mind. Uh, the undisputed champ uh, when it comes to ice cream, uh, you know, Arethusa is is pretty good. Uh, used yeah, to, yeah. used to get that a lot in college, but but yeah, right, right. All, all the all the Yale guys go to go to Arethusa <laughs> and have all the pizza. Although I guess Fairfield's getting a Sally's now, so that, that that's <laughs> that's that's coming your way and already has a Pepe's. So little thank mini goodness. <laughs> New Haven outpost. So Tim Gavin, thank you so much for joining us. We covered a lot of ground here. I really appreciate it. Where can folks find you if they want to, I'm sure as many people listening to this have been sort of inspired by how thoughtful you are on these issues. If they want to help you campaign, if they want to come door knock or make phone calls or write postcards, where can they go to find you and what do you need help with in these next few weeks leading up to the election? Yeah, uh, you can find me at Gavin for CT Senate. Um, That's my website, Facebook, Instagram, anywhere. Um, And we just need people to get the word out uh, as much as possible. So the biggest thing is knocking doors, but there's also phone banking, text banking, we're writing letters. Uh, you know, there's there's something for you to do if you have the will to do it. So we really appreciate all the help so far. It's been an, an incredible experience for me. Um, I really appreciate all the help I've already gotten, but would love to, to knock doors with you too. I'm sure I'll see you in the next, um, we'll see each other at one of these uh, weekend events. Um, so cool. All right, Tim Gavin, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck. Uh, Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much, Mike. We now return to the second half of our talk with treasurer candidate Eric Russell. Baby bonds. They're called baby bonds. That's the nice catchy phrase for an idea that says, okay, um, uh, when when a child is born, if we set aside a small amount of money and and manage it through through the treasurer's office, so this is something that falls under the purview of the treasurer, um, over time, it's going to grow. Yesterday, you were actually at a conference about baby bonds. Uh, what have you learned about it? And, and can you explain it better than I? The answer to that second uh, question is yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can explain it better to you, but I'll, than you, but I'll try. It's, yeah, the idea in this legislation has been, been passed um, through the legislature during the 2021 legislative session. And the concept and the structure that was passed is that for every child born on uh, Husky, which is kind of the indicator here, um, which is the state's Medicaid program, that $3,200 would be placed into a trust for that child. Um, and that would be, um, those trusts would be held and invested by the office of the treasurer. Um, and would, you know, with that return on investment over the course of the child's life would accumulate. And um, from, I believe it's age 18 to 30, um, that individual would have the ability to access that um, invested dollar amount, which is expected to be right around um, $11,000 at age 18. Um, and the child would then be, or that individual would then be able to use those resources for a set, for set purposes. So whether it be for uh, continued education or for um, the purchase of a first home or to invest in a small business, um, or to put into a retirement savings account. And the idea behind it more broadly is that, you know, Connecticut is one of the wealthiest states in the country, um, but also has some of the poorest communities in the country and has uh, one of the largest um, 
inequality gaps when it comes to, to wealth. And so um, what we know is an indicator of the, one of the biggest indicators of being able to build wealth is to have access to assets. Um, and so this is a program that's ultimately designed to uh, provide that opportunity for upward mobility for um, for families who are struggling. I think the other important thing to note is that this is also a program that's that's viewed as um, and, and meant to be an economic driver in our state, uh, understanding that all of our ships uh, rise together. And if that uh, there is some opportunity provided uh, for individuals, we know we know that this is not about whether or not anyone from communities like the one when I grew up in, right? I, I was I was very fortunate that I um, to to be here today, uh, understanding that it's a very unlikely story with how I grew up. Um, but I had you know strong parents at home who invested everything in me to to get a good education, um, and I had a lot of you know people around me who helped support me along the way, uh, and also some luck, right? But I there are too many um, folks that I know that I grew up with that. Um, didn't make it. And it, a lot of it wasn't, has nothing to do with me individually or me being special in any way. Uh, it has to do with those opportunities being provided. And um, this program is, is meant to, to provide uh, that hope and opportunity for uh, communities that have been left behind in a lot of ways historically. Uh, four years ago, when uh, people were running for state office, uh, Certainly, you know, with, with just a flashback uh, for people at that time, it was right around now, in fact, was the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. Uh, the abortion question was certainly on people's minds. People were fighting hard against that nomination because of that, for that very reason, or at least that was very near the top of the list. And now here we are four years later. The Dobbs decision has come down on June 24th and has sort of infused this year's races with uh, a new urgency and a, a important issue. Uh, can you talk about how uh, your proposal, uh, Safe Harbor Fund, is is grew out of that and exactly what that is and what you're proposing for the uh, next term? Sure. So uh, I, I think the first thing to mention is that obviously I wish we were not in a spot where right. uh, we as a state were needing to come up with uh, solutions to um, the reversal of Roe v. Wade uh, following Dobbs. Um, and this proposal, and I think for a lot of other proposals related to this is issue, are meant to be to provide um, access to reproductive health services until we actually get legislation passed by Congress and, and address this on a national, uh, on a federal level. Uh, but my proposal is um, ultimately to create a safe harbor fund uh, in the treasurer's office. And what that fund would do is um, provide resources to uh, healthcare providers who are providing reproductive healthcare services right now in a um, experienced and, you know, safe and compassionate way. Um, and uh, the resources would be used to help fund those traveling from anti-choice states right now who are seeking repro reproductive health care services. So um, we know that who this is going to impact most is women of color, uh, women in poverty, members of the trans community, uh, marginalized communities more broadly. And uh, those are going to be the individuals who actually need the most assistance in getting 
somewhere where they can actually get self safe uh, care. So um, that's ultimately who the, the safe Harbor fund targets. I was been in touch with Jillian Gilcrest, the um, co-chair of the reproductive rights caucus and Liz Gustafson from pro-choice Connecticut about this proposal, um, but also other treasurers and the, um, big picture goal would be to create similar funds um, or resources in other states so we could really build out a nationwide coalition um, and patients seeking care could, you know, could reach out to their state closest to them um, and get the reproductive health care services they need. And, and I think an important thing you said there is this is, you know, ideally will end up being a stopgap measure until we get legislation passed at the federal level. Exactly. And, and listen, this is obviously a uh, very big topic of conversation right now, as it should be. And, and you know, we've we've heard the rumblings or the um, the shrug off from many Republicans saying that this is not an issue that's really up in Connecticut. I don't know why we're spending so much time talking about it. Um, but we had those same conversations when um, justices were being appointed to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And we were told that it wasn't an issue. Uh, and I think even in the state, and as many legislators legislators will tell you, there are measures to chip away at our Roe v. Wade laws in Connecticut every session. Um, and so the idea that uh, candidates running for office, you know, shouldn't have to answer this question very clearly about where they are, and not just to say that they're comfortable with the laws as is, but actually be clear about them being strong advocates for um, choice and what that actually entails and what steps they're going to take to ensure that um, Connecticut residents will continue to have safe access uh, to reproductive health care. And, you know, it's, we've heard a lot of dodging on this and I think it's really important that people um, ask the question and that we get very clear answers about where folks stand. As you've traveled around talking to voters, is there something that's come up on the trail that that was sort of like a, a light bulb moment, a eureka moment for you, like the kind of thing that that wasn't necessarily on your radar, but as you started hearing a couple of times, thought to yourself, "Man, this is this is an issue that's out there that that people that's really front of mind that you've had you've you've come to address, or you've come to talk about, or you've come to think about more." So I think. Um... There are a couple of things. I think one, as we talked about, uh, I think it is a challenge uh, when talking about the role of treasurer, because I think, um, you know, one of the things that's been great is getting around the state and continuing to inform people a little bit more about what the role is and how it impacts people on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, I, I come across less of those questions specific to the office, but I think one thing that is um, has been very clear is that people are uh, are incredibly excited about our democratic ticket um, and the diversity kind of contained within that ticket and the representation. Um, and I think Sean, you know, Scanlon and I have seen quite a bit of folks really being excited about um, some new faces and, and young folks being more involved. And we've seen this with people stepping up running for uh, for the House and for the Senate. Um, obviously, Will Haskell, um, you know, created a huge wave with his energy and um, all of the work that he's done um, since being elected. Um, and I think people are ex- excited to see it on a statewide level as well. And and I will tell you the other thing is just, you know, um, I, I think people uh, certainly from, 
New Haven and the communities like the one that I've grown up in are um, very excited to see people involved in the process and represented um, from their own community and people who understand a lot of the challenges that, that face communities like the one I grew up in. Um, and again, I, I think one of the cool things about our ticket is that there are so many of those different communities represented. Um, and so people, you know, uh, are excited and feel like they, uh, their voice is, is being represented in, in our, our, on our ticket right now. Sean Scanlon has made a big deal about it. Not made a big deal. Sean Scanlon repeatedly shows himself eating ice cream at various ice cream restaurants <laughs> that he has taken advantage. He's leveraging the fact that he needs to go to all these towns. I might as well hit the best ice cream. Shop, <laughs> which honestly is fantastic campaign planning, if you think about it. Um, uh, is there? Is, do you have a similar thing? Are you, are you trying out all the donut shops? Are you trying to hit happen uh, <laughs> by default? So I, I joined Sean for, for some, some scoops with Sean. Um, great idea. I just recently had, uh, did my first tongue tasting with William. We had nice. beef patties at the, uh, at the Durham fair. Um, but you know, so I, I don't have anything, uh, set. I, you know, I'm a, a foodie generally, so I tend to right. eat my way through wherever I'm going. Um, but I, I should have planned ahead. It was the, the scoops with Sean was a good idea. That is a fantastic idea. Eric Russell is your candidate on row A in the Democratic ticket for treasurer. Thank you for joining us here today, Eric. And um, I'm sure we'll see you on the campaign trail over the next five or six weeks. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. So, Dave, that was a pretty good conversation. If I might throw out there, I know one thing Sean can't do is Sean doesn't drink coffee. So maybe what? Eric could find his vertical and he can go to different coffee shops and taste I don't know if he wants to do just one coffee drink or if he wants to try different things, but maybe he could just go to little small town coffee shops and try to rate them. I don't know if maybe it's an idea for his campaign. Uh, yeah, you know, they could stop off in Bethel and have a good twofer because there's a great ice cream parlor and a fantastic coffee shop and they're like a few feet away from each other. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that sounds like, I mean, we always joke on the campaign trail that we should all just carpool uh, because we go to all the same events. Maybe we should uh, hit up that, uh, what's the place called? in Bethel. I think the ice cream is Dr. Mike's and then uh, Molten Java is the coffee joint. Molten Java. And I would say Doc Mike's used to be one in Monroe that I used to go to. So um, yeah, so the great, great ideas all around. So I, I really enjoyed that conversation that you had with Eric. And your chat with Tim, fantastic as well. He is such a great candidate. And again, that's uh, sort of middle Fairfield County, uh, north-south band from Fairfield on up to Newtown, includes a piece of Easton as well. Uh, just a, a great candidate. And it's so nice on these podcasts to have these folks on, people who step up and run. Yeah, and I think Tim, someone who's served his country and his community in, in, in many ways. You know, he talked about college, community service, obviously in the military, and then now, you know, working to to make the internet a little bit of a, a nicer place and obviously running for office, trying to serve his local community. I would point out his district, the 28th district, may be the most scenic district in the fall. Um, so if you're traveling around, uh, door knocking with Tim Gavin is a twofer because you can help a great candidate and you can also see what I think is one of the, the, the most uh, naturally beautiful districts uh, in, in, the, in the state. I feel like some of our Litchfield County and some of our quiet corner people, even some of our uh, like Eastern Connecticut shoreline people might might object to that, Mike. Yeah, I was just about to say the Litchfield County folks maybe have something to say in that debate. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a loose turn. 
Um, but but anyway, we, we love all 36 of them equally, right? Of course we do. If you want to uh, help out the candidates, no matter where you live, you can check out mobilize.us. Tim Gavin has dozens of opportunities for you to help knock doors or make uh, phone calls, throw out some texts, go to a meet and greet, you name it. I think there's even a donuts thing, which loops back to the whole Sean Scanlon, Eric Russell ice cream event. So it all comes full circle people here on Kineticrats, the CT Dems podcast. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.